Buddha said that the mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind in this sense is really big mind, the mind-heart. We can see that the unfolding of our lives really has its origin in the mind. And meditation practice is a way of looking very directly and very closely at the workings of this mind, of how it's all happening. When we look carefully, we see that the mind is not something that's static. When we look carefully at it, as you've been doing for this past month or so, see that the mind is really a tremendously dynamic creative energy. It's constantly changing. And it's being continually conditioned and reconditioned by all of the different factors that arise in it, all of the different qualities of love, of anger, of fear, of mindfulness, of concentration, of effort, of sloth. All of these qualities are arising in different moments and they condition or they color, they flavor the mind. During the last sit that I did in Australia with Sayadaw, I had this image of meditation practice being a Star Wars of mental factors. <laughs> you know, and there were the good guys and the bad guys, and, there were <laughs> and the battlefield was the mind. The meditation leads to a very intimate and direct experience of how this is all working and what factors, what qualities actually lead to more suffering and what qualities, what factors of mind bring about more peace and happiness and freedom. And as we observe it day after day after day, this knowledge, this insight becomes very first-hand. It's no longer second-hand knowledge. It's no longer what somebody else is telling us. It's no longer what we read in the box. We see, we feel it through the direct observation. This continual, steady observation of the nature of this mind and what is happening. As we've mentioned before, the, the literal meaning of the word vipassana Pasana means seeing. And vi, the prefix, means clearly or specially. Seeing clearly, that's the practice. And what we're seeing is not only the specific elements of mind and body that are arising, not only the specific sensations or kinds of thoughts or kinds of emotions. Through the power of our observation, we also begin to understand some of the laws which are governing the unfolding of the process. 
Because things are not happening randomly and they're not happening chaotically. They're happening lawfully. Buddha talked of one law as being of primary importance if we want to understand our minds and our lives. And this is the law of karma. Now, it's very easy for us to understand how laws of nature are working. In some respects, the the studies of science are an exploration of the different physical laws, and we can understand that. The Buddha's vision was so complete that he was able to understand not only the physical laws, but he was able to include in this vision the lawful unfolding of nama-rupa, of mind and matter. But the mind also follows laws, and the interaction of mental-physical phenomena happens lawfully. He identified karma as being the factor of volition in the mind. This is where karma resides, in this quality of volition, in this quality of willing. You could think of volition, which arises in different moments, as being like a powerful seed. It's quite amazing when you think of a seed of of an acorn. Within a seed is the potential for a huge tree. And it's amazing when you look at this tiny little thing and realize that that actually contains within it the potential for something so big. What the Buddha was saying was that each moment of volition is like this seed. And each of these seeds has the potential, has the power, has the capacity to bear countless fruits. The particular kind of fruit that comes from each of our volitional actions depends on the mental factors that are associated with that particular volition. Volition itself is ethically neutral. Sometimes it's associated with wholesome things, sometimes with unwholesome. And so there are three roots of skillful activity. Three roots of unskillful. You're very familiar with them by now. Greed, hatred, delusion. These are the basic roots. And volition is associated with one of them. Volition with desire, volition with hatred or anger, volition with delusion. It's like planting a seed of some future suffering. The three skillful roots are non-greed, or generosity, non-hatred, or love, non-delusion, or wisdom. 
When volition, volitional action is associated with one of those, it's planting a seed of happiness. The Buddha called this understanding of the law of karma. He called it the light of the world because it illuminates for us. When we understand it, it illuminates or reveals how things are happening, how our lives unfold. It's knowing in a very deep and fundamental way what it is that leads to happiness and what it is that leads to suffering. We're no longer groping blindly in the dark or just living out quite habitually our lives. When we understand this law, we can see where our actions are leading. How can we experience this law of karma in our practice and in our lives in a very experiential way? So that it's not merely hearing about or reading some other theory. So we take it from the theoretical level to something that we actually experience. What are the ways in which we can see the results of the actions of our body, the actions of our speech, the actions of our minds? How do we make this real for ourselves? One way is understanding what is called present karma. And that is seeing the very immediate effect of different mind states. What's the immediate effect of anger? How do we feel when we're angry? We don't have to be overly brilliant to realize that it's suffering. You know, when we're filled with hatred, how do we feel when there's a genuine sense of loving or sense of generosity? There's an immediate karma involved that if we're paying attention, we see it, we know it. Not only with respect to how we feel in ourselves, we can see and know the immediate present karma of how people relate to us when these different states are present. How are people relating to us when there's anger? How are they relating to us when there's greed, when there's generosity, when there's compassion? So we see the effect very immediately if we pay attention. There's another way that we can experience this law of karma directly, not, not simply theoretically. And that is through the understanding that the mind retains impressions of our past actions. And in practice, a very common experience that people have 
as the mind begins to calm down and get more collected, we go through stages where all kinds of memories and impressions begin to surface. And sometimes we remember very wholesome actions, very skillful ones, and there's a feeling of a lot of joy. And sometimes, and often it feels more frequently, you know, we, we remember the unskillful actions. And as they come up in the mind, there's often a feeling of tremendous remorse. One of the, one of the most vivid experiences of this for me was in the, in the early years of my practice, when the mind had gotten quite calm and concentrated, the image of something that happened in my Peace Corps training when we killed chickens. I was part of the training. I ended up teaching in this very posh private school in Bangkok. So I don't know what they were training me for (laughs) with the chickens. But at the time, I remember in the Peace Corps training, the, the delusion was so massive, you know, in my mind that I just had this, well, I ought to be able to do this. You know, kind of a macho sense. And even though it was very unpleasant, you know, but after I have this picture, just a a few weeks ago I had a a 25-year reunion of some Peace Corps friends and we were showing slides and one of them was of (laughs) kind of me holding this scrawny chicken by the, with a big smile on my face. Look what I did. Then, some years later, I was practicing in India, and this came back to me, and it was horrible. Just kind of the, the intimate confrontation of what I had actually done. You know, and so, in addition to the innumerable hours of neck pain, <laughs> and who knows what else, <laughs> just the feeling... You know, the, the feeling of remorse was very, very intense. And, and kind of the, the living reality of karma was so apparent to me. You know, and that's just one little example. We've all done so many things, both unwholesome and wholesome. Now, sometimes I think that for whatever reason we don't actually make the space for the recollection of the past wholesome actions that we've done. In Asia, it's really considered quite a skillful thing to do, to recollect one's past good actions. Not from a sense of ego, not from a sense of pride, but just from the taking of joy in wholesomeness, in skillfulness. And so it's just another way of understanding how karma is working. Not theoretically. This is a very vivid, intense experience of it that we all share, we all have. There's another way of understanding how karma works in our lives. And that is 
how our personalities develop through habitual action. Now, we all have a different combination of qualities, different kinds of personalities. It's not by accident. It's all happening because certain factors of the mind have been well cultivated. We practice generosity. And so we we actually become generous. That becomes our nature. We practice love. We become loving. We practice anger. So we become an angry person. And we start living the karma of that. An extrapolation of this development of personality through the repetition of habitual actions is the understanding, which is described very clearly in the Buddhist cosmology, of the six realms of existence. Not only do these actions create a personality in this life, they actually create the karma which which conditions rebirth in different of the realms. And there is a description of the lower realms of suffering. When somebody has practiced hatred, when that's the predominant, overwhelming force in the mind, it is a hell realm as a human being and a conditions rebirth in that lower realm. We can see it. We know it. We know what hatred feels like, the fire of that the alienation of that. Excessive desire, excessive greed. Conditions, Conditions rebirth in what's called the hungry ghost realm, where beings suffer from tremendous desire and no fulfillment. When we're conditioning fear over and over and over again, causes rebirth in what are called the asuras. The translation is sometimes the demon realm. Beings, beings in a realm of a lot of fear and violence. When there's this one sometimes people have a emotional reaction to. <laughs> but if we condition a kind of dullness of mind you know, a lack of investigation, lack of interest in discovering you know, the nature of things. When we condition a kind of stupidity of mind, results in rebirth in the animal realm. Of course, immediately people think of Lassie and <laughs> you know, these wonderful beings. There are undoubtedly exceptions, <laughs> but dullness is what generally characterizes that realm. It is the quality of generosity and morality. The practice, the the repetitive practice and development of generosity, of that openness of heart and of non-harming, which conditions rebirth as a human being, which is one of the happy and precious realms of existence. And of the deva realms, the heaven realms, And the practice of concentration, deep concentration, conditions rebirth in the Brahma realms. 
whether you understand these realms as actual planes of existence in which rebirth happens, or you understand them as experiences that we have while a human being, we can see the karmic result of these different propensities. Those qualities of mind which lead to suffering, those qualities of mind which lead to happiness. It's not a mystery. If we're watching our own minds, we can see it, we can feel it. We can see it in another way also. Someone once came to the Buddha and asked him why there were so many differences among people. Why are some people beautiful and others ugly? Why some intelligent and some not? Some rich, some poor? They went through a whole long list of differences. The Buddha gave a very specific teaching on the law of karma and how specific kinds of actions lead to specific kinds of results. If we involved in a lot of killing, the karmic fruit is to be short-lived. If we refrain from killing, if we're protective of life, the karmic fruit is long life for ourselves. If we're miserly, the karmic fruit is lack of abundance. If we're generous, the karmic fruit is abundance. If there's a lot of anger and hatred, the karmic fruit is ugliness. If there's a lot of loving quality in the mind, the karmic fruit is beauty. And it's not, it's not a punishment reward. It's not that somebody up there you know, is meeting out this. It's just the lawful unfolding of the law of karma. Because people often ask, You know, well, it doesn't make sense because I see somebody, you know, maybe a young child who has not particularly done anything much in this life and yet is experiencing either great good fortune or great ill fortune. To understand karma in this sense of different actions bringing different results, the only way of understanding it is to see it over lifetimes. Because within one lifetime, we can't always see this cause-effect relationship. There are beings who have this power, who have this power of mind, and we have the potential for seeing that ourselves. When we understand the law of karma in all of these different ways. It changes the way we relate to experience. And it changes the way we relate in many profound ways. When we understand that things are lawful, that they're not happening capriciously, they're not happening accidentally, but there is a lawfulness at work, we begin to approach experience 
from a place of acceptance rather than resentment and rather than pride. I have to be very careful here because acceptance does not mean resignation. Sometimes people hear about the law of karma and it's all lawful and they hear it in such a way as to imply a kind of fatalism and resignation and dismissal of the actual conditions that people are in. That is not a correct understanding of it at all. It's simply to see that what we are experiencing in our lives is the result of conditions. There are conditions, there are causes behind it. It does not imply that we just sit back and not do anything. If the present conditions are unwholesome, are difficult, are suffering, even though there may be causes behind it, becomes the cause of compassion within us. Okay, how can we come out of this state of suffering? How can we help others come out of the state of suffering? So it's very important not to misinterpret this understanding of the lawfulness of things to be a resignation. So that's not the implication of it. The really profound implication of understanding this law of karma is that we begin to take a much greater sense of responsibility for our actions, knowing that each one of our actions bears fruit, bears result. And so we begin to take a much longer range view of things. You know, and we see the value of this so clearly now throughout the planet. You know, from, from seeing the dangers of not taking a long-range view, we see what's happened to the environment and to society. When we act without responsibility, without care, without concern, oh, this action has no fruit, it has no consequence, it has no result. And it creates tremendous problems. Taking a long-range view of things helps us take responsibility for what we're doing. Where are our actions leading? An action of speech, an action of our bodies, an action of our minds. What kind of seed are we planting? This leads us to a very strong interest in the choices that we make. Instead of just kind of going blindly through our lives, living out habit patterns of conditioning, which is so easy. Now, in the busyness of our lives, we just get caught up, we get swept up 
by habit. It takes a lot of presence of mind. It takes a lot of concern, a lot of interest to pay attention to what we're doing. What are the consequences? But it's tremendously empowering. Because then we can actually make the choices in our lives which bring about happiness. When we stop to consider where our actions are leading, what is the karmic fruit of this kind of action, we can also ask ourselves, do we want to go there? This action leads to a certain result. Is that where I want to end up? This kind of reflection, this kind of wise consideration is essential if we really want to uplift our lives. Now we look to see in our actions what qualities of mind are being developed. Do we want to be strengthening them? It's not easy to do this. It takes a tremendous attention. We really have to be watchful. We have to be mindful of what it is that's going on. The image or an image which I found very helpful and relevant Now, each of our actions is like a drop of water in a bucket. And if we just look at each individual drop, it does not seem significant. But when you leave the bucket under a dripping faucet, drop, 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 as we know very well at IMS, that bucket gets filled. (laughs) We've left many buckets (laughs) around this place. Our mind is just the same way. We think that, oh, this action doesn't matter. It's just one kind of speech. It's just one moment of speech. Or one moment of interaction. It doesn't matter. Every time we perform an action, it makes it easier for that same kind of action to happen again. We're actually practicing whatever that quality is. And so the Buddha was so forceful in, in reminding us to pay attention to what kind of drops are going in the bucket. What are we filling the mind with? Is it with greed or is it with generosity? Is it with anger or is it with love? Is it with delusion or is it with wisdom? This is the transformation of our consciousness. This is the transformation of who we are. There are many subtleties of understanding this law of karma. It's extremely complex and it's said 
that to understand it fully requires the mind of a Buddha. And, and so it's not that we try to understand how something we did five lifetimes ago is coming back to us as a stabbing pain in the shoulder when we sit. Tracing that would be quite difficult. But there are some general laws, general ways of understanding that are very helpful. One aspect of this, which I find very encouraging, is that unwholesome actions that we've done in our lives actually can be covered by many wholesome ones. What this means is we're all trailing an infinite amount of past karma. We've been going through countless lifetimes doing all kinds of actions, both skillful and unskillful. It's said that the present purity of mind attracts the wholesome karma for the past. It draws the fruit of past wholesome actions. And present impurity of mind draws or attracts the past unwholesome karmas. And so as we train ourselves, as we practice, as we understand this, and develop increasingly the skillful states, the skillful roots of mind, of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, even though we've all done many unskillful things, we're creating this field of purity which keeps attracting or pulling to us or drawing to us our own past accumulation of wholesome actions. And so we keep going towards more and more light. Doesn't mean that we never experience unwholesome results, but the general direction is one of more light, more ease, more peace. It's not enough, though, to simply reflect on all of this. We can examine and reflect how this law of karma is working very directly in our lives. We can see it in terms of present karma, the effect of particular mind states. We can see it in terms of the impressions that come, the memories that come. We can see it in terms of the development of particular traits of personality or particular karmic results. But in order to actually shape the direction of our lives, we need a certain kind of force in the mind, a certain kind of power that will enable us to make choices. And there is a power in the mind which gives us the strength. And this is the great power of renunciation. Sometimes people hear the word renunciation. Some people get very inspired by it. I'll renounce everything and go off to a cave in the Himalayas. Other people hear the word renunciation 
and get quite terrified. <laughs> but if we understand it correctly, I think it can be a tremendously empowering force for us. Because the essential element of renunciation is letting go of what is unskillful. Letting go of those things which are causing us suffering. Why hold on? We're holding this hot burning coal in our hand. Now the mind is filled with anger or hatred. I have a right to feel this anger. I'm going to really feel it and hold on to it. Who's suffering? You know, we're the ones that are suffering. Can we let go? Can we learn how to let go of what is unskillful? This is the heart of renunciation. Can we learn to say no to the mind? This is the art. The art of a skillful no. No to what? No to those desires, those impulses, those intentions which are unwholesome, which we see are leading to suffering. Can we learn to see that, to understand that? And say, no, I'm not going to go down that route. Now this no is very tricky. We really have to learn all about it. It is not the no of aversion. We're not saying no with aversion. We're not saying no with suppression. And so there's an unwholesome desire. We see that it's a desire motivated by a lot of greed. It's going to lead to a lot of suffering if we, if we proceed on that course. When we let go and we say no to that, we're not hating it. We're not sitting on it. We're not squashing it. Not suppression. It's not the no of denial. Oh, I don't feel, I don't feel desire. I have no greed. It's the wrong kind of no. It's not the no of self-judgment, which, as we all know, is a prevalent conditioning. You know, it's not the no of, I'm so bad for having this. It's much more like the loving no that we would say to a child that might be about to do something that's going to be harmful to it. You know, the, the child is reaching for a hot stove. No. no. You know, and it can be very firm, it can be very strong. It's not done with aversion, it's not done with hatred, it's not done with denial, it's not done with judgment of the kid. It's done with love and it's done with wisdom. This is leading to suffering. No. One of the things I have found most helpful in my practice is basically to treat my mind like a two-year-old. <laughs> that seems to work pretty well. <laughs> you know, it's going off on some trip. No. No, I don't have to do this one. 
So it's very gentle, it's very loving, but also it can be firm. Ajahn Sumedho, who's a Western monk in the Thai forest tradition, who's a wonderful teacher, he said something which seems so apt to me. He said that the real nature of our practice is not following the heart, it's training the heart. There are a lot of things that come up in our hearts. There are a lot of beautiful, wonderful, loving things, and there are a lot of things that come up that are not so great. (laughs) These are just habits of wanting, of desire, of greed, of anger, of passion, you know, in in an unwholesome way. And so it's not simply a question of following whatever energy happens to arise. This strength and power of renunciation has to do with really bringing some discriminating wisdom. Okay, is this skillful? Is it going to lead to happiness? Or is it going to lead to suffering? And when we can discriminate, when we can see, when we understand this law of karma, we can employ this strength this power in us of renunciation, this ability to say no in a very loving way. There's a tremendous value in this regard with a recollection of the precepts because sometimes we get so caught up in a particular desire or wanting or fear or anger, whatever it may be, And we may get confused about what's skillful and what's unskillful. And we may be so caught up and so identified that it's not clear to us. But if the precepts are very alive for us, if we've really made them part of our lives, they become a very clear reference point. It's kind of a bottom line of what's skillful and what's unskillful. And so it reminds us, okay, take care. Let me really see what this action is about. The thing that inspires me so much about the teachings and about the practice is the understanding that our suffering and happiness is up to us. And it comes about when we understand how things are working, how things are happening. So that's one kind of renunciation. The ability to say no to something that is going to lead to suffering. There's another kind of renunciation that is tremendously empowering for the practice and has tremendous relevance for people in the middle of a retreat. And that is understanding renunciation as conservation of energy. In our practice, day after day after day, the energy starts building. It builds in our bodies, it builds in our emotions, it builds in our minds. Things start getting very intense. 
have noticed that. You know, it's like everybody's very sensitive and things are, they're quite powerful. Experience becomes very vivid. Often this is, this is seen very clearly for, for yogis, just in the quality of dreams. Very commonly, dreams become so vivid and the recollection of them becomes so strong. Things are getting charged. This happens because of the principle, which is extremely important to understand, that effort creates energy. And so in every moment of making effort to be with a breath, to be with a step, to be with a sensation, every single moment of that effort, the energy is building. And there are times in practice when this becomes very, very evident. Now, sometimes you just see it after, after quite a while, but there are times when we actually can feel the energy building with each step, with each breath, because effort creates energy. What happens with this, as people go on, is that it's like the blowing up of a balloon. You know, and at times it can get quite uncomfortable. It's like there's this internal stretch going on in the bodies, in the mind, in the emotions, in the feelings. And so the mind often looks for ways to release a little bit of this energy. Now what I call energy leaks. We look for ways to leak it out a little bit because we don't like feeling this stretch. Everybody has their own particular some mixed metaphor here, arsenal of strategies, you know, of ways of releasing energy, of leaking energy. Some, some really common ones. We sit and we daydream for a while. Oh, that's nice. Have a nice little fantasy, you know, come in and sit. Often happens, well, it can happen anytime. You know, maybe first sitting in the morning, just up and... Mm, and settle in, it's still dark out. <laughs> and sit and daydream for an hour, and the hour goes really, oh, breakfast, good. <laughs> yeah, n- nice, pleasant sitting. <laughs> or the sitting after lunch, whenever. It's to realize that that kind of daydreaming is really just an energy leak. We're, just, we're letting that momentum of energy, which we've built up, release a little bit. Another common way of leaking energy is when we just start ambling about. You know, amble about the building instead of maybe doing the walking meditation. Oh, I'll go for a little amble. You know, I'll see how the new well is coming. You know. And in each, in each of these situations, We're not making that precise, careful effort to be present. We're not building the energy. We're not conserving it, but we're letting it it leak away. You know, the 15th cup of tea during the day. Looking about, you know, that's a big one. 
often we lose the momentum, we lose the energy through the eye door. And I've seen this so often in my practice. You know, doing, even, even maybe when we're doing the walking meditation, trying to be quite formal, mind hears a little sound. What's that? <laughs> you know, or you come to the end of the path. And again, I've seen it so often. I would be walking, come to the end of the path. Instead of really staying focused on coming to the end and stopping and turning and coming back, come to the end, oh, look about, see what's around, who's around, you know, how they're practicing. <laughs> and all of it is an energy leak. We're kind of we're losing that momentum, losing the buildup. Reading is a huge energy leak. In this regard, it's something I've mentioned before. I would really caution you against reading mail, you know, unless it's something that is absolutely essential. It is a tremendous diversion. It really can uh, just set the mind uh, spinning for a long time. But even if one is not reading mail, uh, just the, the, the mind wanting just a little break from this, you know, I used to read the detergent boxes in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, just the ingredients in the detergent box. Anything. Just let me, let me read anything at all. <laughs> and just to watch the mind do this. You, know, if you do it enough times, begin to catch on. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't have to keep doing that. Let me conserve. Let me build up the energy. This kind of renunciation, letting go of the ways we divert ourselves, and for each one to look, to look carefully, because we've each found our own little ways of doing it, really to take care with that. And if we can practice this renunciation of diversion, it makes the practice very powerful. Instead of dissipating energy, we're conserving it. And as we conserve it, it builds and builds and builds. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. And that's the practice getting stronger and more powerful. It doesn't mean forcing. It doesn't mean struggle. It doesn't mean getting tight. It's staying very gentle, very soft, very open, but holding it, nurturing it, rather than dissipating it. There's a third kind of renunciation. Not only is it the letting go of what's unwholesome, that ability to say no in the mind, and not only is it the conservation of energy, there's another kind of renunciation which effects a very deep transformation of ourselves. And that is the power of non-identification with each arising object. Not creating in the thoughts, in the feelings, in the breath, in the sensation, in the movement, not creating the sense of self, not identifying with these objects as being I, as being self, as being mine. 
It is all empty phenomena rolling on. It's just nama rupa, consciousness and object, knowing an object in each moment. Can we renounce? And it really is a function of mindfulness. This sense of identification. Can we not create or imprison ourselves with this sense of self, of I? This non-identification creates the space in our minds, the spaciousness, so that we can see more and more clearly the impermanent, impersonal nature of phenomena. We see it all as just arising and passing away. When we are continually reaching out from a place of desire, of wanting, or reaching out, continually expressing each movement of our energy, what's happening is that we're solidifying this strong sense of self, the strong sense of the world. This power of renunciation, of identification, the solidity begins to dissolve. And there's a wonderful sense of spaciousness, of ease, of lightness. We're not getting so caught, we're not getting so tangled in phenomena. We're allowing the dance of the elements simply to come and go. When we're no longer driven to act by every impulse, when we have this space in the mind, generosity begins to come much more easily because we're not holding on to things so much. So generosity becomes quite a natural impulse. When we're not driven to act, through identification with every desire, every want, every aversion. And we've really let go in a fundamental way of this identification with phenomena. We're no longer simply acting out in our lives. There's a, a much greater sense of ease, much greater sense of compassion, much greater sense of kindness. We become more sensitive to others because we're not so caught in our own sense of self. Dalai Lama said something very beautiful. He said, my true religion is kindness. It's so simple. But how can we do it? My true religion is kindness. Where does kindness come from? It comes from a spacious mind. It comes from a mind that is not caught, not identified, not bound up with each arising phenomena. When we observe our minds carefully, we can see for ourselves and directly some of the workings of the law of karma. We can see very directly 
that actions of different kinds bring different results. No longer is theoretical. We see it. This kind of action brings this kind of result. From understanding this, we can begin to appreciate in a much deeper way the importance of renunciation. Renunciation as letting go of what's unskillful. Renunciation as conservation of energy. Renunciation as letting go of the identification with phenomena. Letting go of the sense of self. And out of these levels of renunciation comes an ease in the mind and an openness in the mind which allows us to live with a much deeper sense of grace, much deeper sense of ease. This is what our practice is about. It comes from understanding. It comes from seeing clearly. That is Vipassana. Seeing clearly how things are working. Seeing clearly the nature of our minds. Sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.